nine. Okay, my illustration no longer works. Thirteen. Okay. Wow. We have nine and thirteen. So I grew up uh, with four older brothers and older sister, and uh, that's someone's phone. Uh, anyways, so it was absolute chaos with my family growing up as a kid. My poor mom, she had all these kids running around, and so, and you, your young moms can, can deal with this, so whenever something would come off the table and break on the ground, my mom would come rushing across and ask, who did this? And I was the youngest, and I just would look up at my brothers, and without fail, every single time, the hands would go up, pointing at someone else. I was shocked how it was never anyone's fault in my house growing up as a kid. So as a young kid, I've seen this example, and I'm a baby, and so whenever I do something, and my mom comes rushing across, I start blaming my brothers. And then if you're also a baby in your family, you also know that if it was really obvious that I did something, I would just start crying and my mom would have mercy on me. <laughs> so I'm glad we find this a little bit funny. But um, so some degree, we adults do the same thing. I uh, was listening to a story of my mother-in-law. She's a nurse up in Central California. And uh, she had this patient. Uh, she was talking to his patient, going on and on and on, and she was, she was so relieved, so excited, that they finally diagnosed her with an anger disorder. An anger disorder. So she's happy that she is able to now explain away her selfishness and her lack of patience. And so, this sounds ridiculous now, but in probably 20 or 30 years, this is not going to be the case with where we're going at in society. But the point I'm making at with these two stories is that we humans are natural blame shifters. All of us here, to some degree or another, struggle in taking ownership in our faults and struggle and especially taking ownership in our sins, with that faulty heart condition that we all share here, that James is addressing in this text this morning. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and uh, turn them to James chapter 1. I myself don't even have your mind out yet. Uh, before we start reading, I also want to go to make a quick announcement. So we're going to look up to your screen, and hopefully uh, you'll see later on after we go through the text. If you have any questions with the message, go ahead and you are encouraged to text your question into that number that eventually is going to pop up. And myself and another a couple elders will do our best to answer your questions here at the end. So, last week, James started off the series on James with the main theme to grow up, right? James's aim is his spiritual maturity. And if you haven't noticed already, James's style of writing is. is Pretty different from that of like an Apostle Paul. Where Apostle Paul has like this long, drawn-out argument, and then from there, like applies. James kind of is all over the place. It's called the Proverbs of the New Testament. He has a lot of like these independent thoughts and sayings, and then when you put them all together, all serve the purpose of our spiritual maturity. So in our text this morning, we have 
a few different sections. The first one, first section is to talk about trials, then temptation, and the character of God. So what we're going to do, we're going to briefly explain each portion of the scripture, and then we're going to see how James unifies his big idea with the passage. Once we understand his main theme, we're going to re-go over and readdress each section, lie to the theme, and apply it to our lives. All right, make sense? We're tracking here. All right, let's go ahead and read God's word this morning. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray, asking and seeking wisdom. God, we, we need you. Pray that your spirit would illuminate your word to us, that we may understand it, and that we may apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. We see right off the bat, verse 12. We see language that's reminiscent from another major passage in the New Testament. James against the brother of Jesus. And so we see, blessed is the man. That sounds a lot like what we hear in the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. And so a synonym that we can say for blessed would be happy. So James is saying happy is the man who perseveres through testing them, I'm paraphrasing what he's saying, because when he has completed it, he will receive his reward from God, which is eternal life. We also notice in this verse the crown of life, and it's just kind of studying, and, and uh, is this talking about like a ruler's crown? But based on other portions of the New Testament, based on other contexts where the authors are talking about persevering in trials, we could most likely say that James is talking about uh, maybe like an Olympian or, or someone who's, who's competing and receives this perishable wreath. This is what they used to do in the old times in, in the Olympics. And so think of an imagery of, of like a marathon runner who's running this race and running and running and running. When they finally finish, you get rewarded with this medal around your neck. So James is exhorting his readers in the same way and saying that the life is a marathon with various trials. Keep on running, for Christ is your reward. We go into the next section, verse 13. We notice how uh, James' thought flow shifts. So we can get that back up there. We're just going to continue to follow it down. So apparently... When we're reading verse 13, we see that a lot of these early Christians uh, that James was addressing probably had a wrong understanding of God or even blaming him for their sin. Now, I think it's 
important to make a distinction here that James makes in his text. There is a difference between testing and temptation. First, testing. God does test his people. You think about the story of Abraham and Isaac and the nation of Israel. When God does test his people, it's always for a good benefit, to strengthen their faith, to, to mold their character. Now contrast this with temptation, in this context means to lure or to entice people into evil. James is making it clear right here that God never lures people into evil. He gives two reasons for that. First, God cannot be tempted with evil, as I think we see in verse 13. Or maybe reward another way, evil cannot tempt God. Meaning that God experiences no effects from evil's enticements like we do. The second reason he gives is that God tempts no one. So God is never the author of temptation or evil. Notice James does not give a gray area argument right here. This is a very black and white argument. God is never tempted with evil. He never tempts no one. And because of this, James reveals who the real culprit of temptation is. He says in verse 14, the real culprit of our temptation is our desire. James makes it clear here, along with the rest of Scripture, that we sin because we have sinful hearts. We have bent desires that naturally go after sin. We ultimately do not sin because of Satan or because of our in-laws or because of a lack of caffeine, but we sin because we have bent hearts and we are born sinners. We have these warped desires. And so we notice, I think in verse 15, and James kind of uses this fishing imagery. I think of it as like a trout or a bass, and, and temptation is like this lure that goes by a spinning thing, and so we just naturally see it, and we start following after it. And when we follow after temptation, James uses this, this birthing imagery that when uh, desire, we, we go after temptation, desire gives birth to sin, and sin, when it has grown up and continues an unrepentant lifestyle, is going to bring forth, give birth to death, or spiritual death. So, we are responsible for our sin, not God or anything else. The last section, verses 16 through 18. James wants the readers to understand a major truth about God. He's saying, don't deceive yourselves. God is good. Every good thing that we have, every good gift that, that comes from above is from God, the Father of lights. And God does not change. There is no variation of shadow due to change. So God is good, and he does not change. So God's character is eternal. He is eternally good. He is eternally merciful, gracious, and holy to just name a few. But I told you we'd be going just through these sections briefly, just explaining what they mean, and then hopefully this one we can see James's main point. 
he is urging his audience to reject the lie that God or someone or something else is at fault for their sin and desires for them to embrace God's character. Or to say it another way, he urges them to take ownership of their sin by embracing God's character. So with this view of life, let's go ahead and apply this truth to each section of the passage this morning. Let's go back up to, to James 1.12 here. We're going to reread this verse real quick. So blessed is the man who remains steadfast in trial, and he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So I I loved Trace's sermon last week on trials, and he covered uh, in depth on that subject. And I love what he said about uh, when you are going through trials, the first thing we need to do is pray for wisdom. Pray for wisdom, how we can capitalize on our situation to grow spiritually, to grow to become more like Christ. And the fact is, all of us here can admit it, trials and testing is tough. None of us want to go through it, right? But if we are a follower of Christ, trials and testing is a reality that we all have to go through. Romans 8, 16 through 17 says, The Spirit himself bears witness in our spirit that we are children of God, and children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. I love that whole chapter of Romans is, is just filled with glorious promises, and then you just want to like take out that last bit in verse 17. Provided we suffer with him, provided we go through trials with him. And I think one of the scariest verses. All the Bible is uh, Philippians 3, verse 8 through 11. This is where Paul is saying that everything he ever accomplished and ever did is just rubbish in the face of knowing Christ. And he says, Indeed, I count everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in me not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Again. Mostly good news, right? The righteous shall live by faith. And then Paul has this crazy desire here, and he wants more and more of Jesus. And he knows by becoming more and more like Jesus, he is going to have to go through suffering, go through testing. I think about, I have meditated and prayed through these verses a lot of times, and and honestly, I cannot get myself to the same desire that Paul wants here. I don't know about you guys here. Maybe you're more holy than I am. But man, I don't know anyone who would rightly go out of his way to pursue suffering so that they can be more like Christ. But I think I know the answer of how Paul is able to do that. It's, it's a head knowledge, right? It's, 
this is the Sunday school answer. It's not really like a, a hard knowledge that I'm feeling myself. But the head knowledge says that Paul is able to say these words because he knows the character of God. And he works trials and suffering for our ultimate good, which is our holiness and our satisfaction in Christ alone. So this leads us to our first principle this morning. Embracing God's character leads to seeing trials with God's perspective. And if, if we can be honest here, right? we, we know scripture, we, we see that um, if, if, if we are going to become more like Christ, we're going to have to go through suffering, we're going to have to go through trials. And, and, and some of us, we can feel that, you know, I, I'm, I'm good, God. I'm, I'm comfortable. I don't want to go through that. I don't want to be purified like that. But if we are embracing the truth that God is good, he's merciful and sovereign, through our trials, we can always see in hindsight how God used our trials for our good in His glory. Now, I, I know some of you guys know my real age here. I like to hide it behind here. Uh, so I, I haven't gone through much suffering and trials in my life, but I have gone through some that I have seen the faithfulness of God, how He's used them to make me more satisfied in Christ. Uh, I was a uh, my dream, this is maybe going to surprise some of you guys, it was to be a Marine Corps officer. So I was, I was focused on that. I even, uh, I didn't know where to find the Marine Corps officer recruitment office, and so I, I made a huge mistake of going to enlist him. <laughs> and I said, hey, where, where's the officer section? He's like, this, this guy stood up with all these, these ribbons on his chest. He's like, you know what? The best officers make prior enlistment. <laughs> so I fought every word, and 30 minutes later, I was signing some paper. <laughs> but I maintained that focus. I went off and deployed to Okinawa, and I was coming back. I was actually signed up as a reservist. And so I, right away when I came back, I, I talked to the officer selection officer, and, and uh, we started getting my paperwork going. And I got all my written, written recommendations and all that. And so I was just waiting for my ship date to go off to OCS. And then I noticed some like bump in my lower back. And I'm starting to touch it. It's oozing. I'm thinking you guys impressions here. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, this is, this is not good. So I went to the doctor. They're like, this is not good. And so they sent me off to a, a general surgeon. And it's like, okay, no big deal. We're just going to lock this out. And uh, you're going to be good and ready to go in three months. Well, three years and three painful surgeries later, instead of me becoming a Marine Corps officer, I was looking at being medically separated from the Marine Corps. But yet, I, I look at that time with joy. I see that as a, a major turning point in my life. I see how God incredibly used that in my life, where I was just such a, how do I say this, extremely focused on what I wanted to do, my plan, my will, and God just totally ripped that out of my life, and he showed me 
how Christ is sufficient in my weakness, how Christ is my greatest joy, not in my identity, in my job, or what I do, or how great of shape and how well I do on the physical fitness test. And, you know, you don't have to take my word for it. I think going through that time, God increased my joy, my satisfaction in Christ alone. But there's many other people here who perhaps gone through similar experiences. And, and church history tells us that there's thousands of people who have suffered, and yet they, they count it as joy because they see what God has done through that to make them more satisfied in Christ. So when they embrace God's character, they see their trials with a new perspective. The joy in Christ increases. I think here this morning uh, is that a lot of us are perhaps still buying into the lie that God is most concerned with my happiness. That if I'm trusting in Christ, then God is, is going to bless me with the two-story house with the white picket fence and the two-and-a-half kids and the, the golden retriever. Fact is, though, is, is yes, God is concerned with your happiness. But God is most concerned with your holiness. Amen. First Thessalonians 4 3, stop up there on the slides, says, God's will for your life is your sanctification. Paraphrasing that a little bit. God's will for your life is that you be set apart, that you be pure, that you conform to become more and more like Christ, because Christ is so much better than the two-story house with the white fence and the two-and-a-half kids in the golden tree. And because God desires for you to be holy, God will often bring circumstances, this is where trials and testing comes in, He will bring circumstances in our life to reveal sin issues in our heart. So He may Allow circumstances in your life to point out your anxiety and to show how you have this sinful tendency to control and to latch on to things instead of a humble trust and disposition before the Lord. He may allow you to have a new challenging co-worker come into your life to reveal your, your heart tendency to be selfish and well, let's just talk about marriage in general. Right? So God uses marriage after the illustration of like uh, two pieces of sandpaper coming together and just rubbing together to make us smooth. God will use marriage to reveal how you look for fulfillment in your spouse instead of ultimately finding it in Christ. See, God uses these circumstances for our ultimate glory in Christ's likeness. And when these sins are exposed and we take ownership of them, then true healing and spiritual maturity can take place. So again, repeating our first principle, embracing God's character leads to seeing trials with God's perspective. All right, so the next section is focusing on verses 13 through 15. So the next section is, is uh, James correcting this false assumption. 
that, that God is to blame for my temptation, or, or God is to blame for my sin. He's saying, no, he's not. That's impossible because God is good. He cannot be tempted with evil, nor can he ever tempt anyone else with evil. See, from the very beginning, man has had a problem with blame shifting. Let's go ahead and uh, go to Genesis 3. So this is in the context of Garden uh, where uh, Satan, Satan dwells the serpent and lures Eve into evil. Uh, and she takes of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil to become, she wants to become like God, takes it eat and gives it to Adam. And this is the aftermath of what we see here in verse 11 12. God said, Hey, God said, Who told you that you have you eaten of the tree of which I command you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me to eat with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree I ate. So Adam not only blames Eve here, but he seems to hint also blaming God, the woman whom you gave to be with me. You gave me this woman. And she gave me this fruit. Yet, just like Adam, just like the people that James is addressing here in the text, we also struggle to one degree or another in taking ownership of our sin. I've heard people brush off their sin because of, of the family or the environment that they were raised in. That, oh, my, my dad and my mom was like this, so I'm just like this. I have heard people explain their sin away because of their daily environment. If I had a nickel for every single time I heard a kid <clears throat> say, well, everyone in my section curses every third word, so it's just hard for me not to. Or everyone in my office gossips, so it's just hard for me to not partake in that. And I can give more and more examples, and I don't, don't want to come off as insensitive and, and not acknowledge that. How we were raised in our environment can, can negatively affect our behavior. But let's think about it. If someone is, is standing before the all-holy God, apart from the work of Christ, the Bible makes it clear that they will never be able to blame their sin on someone or something else. God is not going to give them a pass because of their work environment. God is not to give them a pass because of how they were raised. And God is not going to give them a pass for their anger disorder. Ultimately, we are all responsible for our sin because of our sinful desires. And yet, there is good news here, church. Principle number two says... Embracing God's character leads to taking ownership of sin. Church, once we embrace that God is good, is gracious, and merciful beyond our wildest imaginations, we don't have to blame shift anymore. We can confess our sins. We can agree with God about our sins, about who we really are, and come before him and have confidence that we will be cleansed and our fellowship will be fully restored with God. 1 John 1 9 says, If we confess our sin, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can be real and honest about ourselves and about our sin because we know that God is good and merciful. I'll get into the last section, verses 16 through 18 this morning. James reaffirms that, that God is good and, and unchanging. But I want to focus here on that last verse, verse 18, uh, in our section. I'm going to reread it again. So, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So, notice, again, we, we see kind of this birthing language, this birthing imagery. So, God of his own will. Now, in contrast to desire giving birth to sin and sin giving birth to death, God is giving birth to us by the word of truth. In other contexts of the New Testament, it's the gospel. So God gives birth to us through the gospel that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's focus on that word, first fruits. It's very significant. In the Old Testament, this term meant to, to define something as sacred or, or set apart. It was used to speak about the first ripening of a harvest with the Israelites and, and bringing that before God. It was used to talk about the, the first offspring of an animal and bringing that and sacrificing it before God. Has also talked, spoke, spoke about and referred to the nation of Israel. That Israel was the first fruit. That they were God's sacred, set-apart, special people. And yet, notice here, James employs the same language to describe all those who have been redeemed by Christ. Let's just pause here. Let's think about the significance of what James is saying here. If you have turned from your sin and you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are called God's special possession. The God of the entire universe calls you his set-apart ones. I used to work as a security guard at a night shift a long time ago, and, and I was just kind of in the middle of nowhere. I just remember, like, every night at 2 in the morning, I would come up and come up to this hill, and uh, I would just look at the stars, just how vast the sky was. There was like the, the one last part of Orange County that was not affected by all the light in the city. And so I would just look at the stars and just gaze and just be amazed of how great, how majestic God is. And you notice when, when you just become in awe of how great and how big and how glorious God is, you start to notice how small and insignificant and little you are, and yet, if we are in Christ, this is gospel truth. God is great and glorious, and we are small and insignificant, insignificant and yet we are called God's special possession. We must have a great, great Savior. This leads us to our last principle, embracing God's character leads to viewing 
yourself the way that God views you. The great news of the gospel is that we were once enemies of God. Ephesians uh, calls us uh, children of wrath. Yet in Christ we are called God's special possession. We have been chosen by God, cleansed of our sin, clothed in righteousness and adopted as sons of God. And if we understand and embrace these truths about God and about us, this changes everything. This changes our whole outlook on life. We can trust God for every single trial we go through. We can be honest with God and ourselves about our sin. And we can go boldly before God seeking mercy and knowing that in Christ he has paid for all our sin. I love this quote. Tim Keller says, what did he say? Okay. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dare to be. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. This is good news. We roll into communion this morning. And I just want to challenge you guys to assess your hearts, to just be praying through, um, gosh, where your heart is suppressing, or where you are, are are not, or you're blinded to the fact that you're blame shifting or not taking ownership of sin in your life. Just want to encourage you to, to ponder. God's good character truth, that God is good, that we have a great Savior. And I, I want to talk to the lost in this room. If there's lost people in this church, if you have not put your faith in Christ, maybe you are still relying on your good works to earn favor with God, but yet you are still struggling with guilt, and you are still weighed down, I want to urge you to talk to me. Please come and talk to me. Come and talk to the elders. Come and talk to other mature Christians in this room. We would love to share with you the great news of Jesus Christ. And with that, let's go ahead and pray this morning. Father, it is it's, it's so hard to believe. God, how big you are. How small and insignificant we seem, Lord, and yet you call us your special possession. Lord, it is so very hard for us to take ownership of our faults, to be real and honest with ourselves. We are naturally bent to not do that, Lord, but when we see the great Savior we have, the great interceder we have in Jesus Christ, May this give us boldness to be real and honest with ourselves, knowing, Lord, that you know everything about us and that you have paid for all our sin. You nailed it to the cross and you have transferred to us your righteousness. We have been unified with 